Please remain standing as you're able, and would you follow after my example? I'm hoping to follow after the example that Jesus and the disciples would have followed by uh, reciting what they call the Great Commandment, or the Shema, before they came to the Scripture. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning as we continue to talk about hospitality is from the 15th chapter of Romans. It begins in verse 7. In the 14th chapter, Paul is discussing the things that divide the church at Rome, and and he encourages them to uh, come together and then gives them uh, this strong encouragement beginning in verse 7. Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you to the praise of God. For I say to you that Christ became the servant of the Jews on uh, behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs could be confirmed and moreover so that the Gentiles would give glory to God for his mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Way back in 1989, a book came out that became a classic of sorts. It was entitled The Great Good Place, and it was written after a study of people who lived in Chicago. And what the author found is that these people in Chicago had need really of three places that had to come together in their life for them to find meaning and fulfillment. And the three places were, of course, their home, their work, But also, he said, there was a third place, which for many of them was a tavern, a bar. For others, it was a bowling alley. But it came out the same time, you may remember, the sitcom Cheers. And so part of when people talked about the book, they said, you know, the the great good place where, you know, everybody knows your name. Their troubles are all the same. You know, they're always glad that you came. This book actually has been reprinted twice since then because I think it, it contains a real element of truth that we need those things all functioning well in our lives in order to live uh, a life that feels uh, fulfilling. And I think that my hope is, as I think about the church, not as a building, but as a people, is that we would become for many people that great good place or that third place in addition to home and work or home and volunteer activities that would give people a sense of uh, significance and meaning in their life. And to do this, I believe it's really important that we begin to learn and practice better uh, hospitality. That's my reason for coming to hospitality, but I got to thinking, well, what does the Bible say? Why does the Bible think that hospitality is important? Now, the easiest answer is, I'm not completely sure. But I think there are a lot of possibilities. I thought I would list some of them for you this morning. One of the reasons I think that the Bible thinks that hospitality is important, because if you look at the history of God's people in the Bible, most always they're treated inhospitably. They were slaves in Egypt. Uh, Later, the Assyrians came through the northern part of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and carted people off into into slavery and other towns they leveled uh, with fire. Uh, There was great destruction. And then about 120 years later, the rest of Israel, including Jerusalem, got captured by the Babylonians, and they separated mothers from their screaming children. 
They separated husbands from wives, young from old, and anybody who had the possibility of becoming a slave, they hauled off into, up into Babylon. And so that was the history of God's people in the Old Testament. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus and Paul both lived under Roman rule. And the Romans were well known for taking land away from uh, the peasants who lived in uh, in Israel, and also at the same time, while giving them no land on which to grow a crop, they also would multiply the taxes upon them. And so they treated them most inhospitably. And so I think the Bible knows that's been the record of God's people and doesn't want God's people to inflict that on others. I think there are other reasons as well. One is, if you're familiar with um, with Israel, the land of the Bible, the land of the Gospels, one of the things you might know is that Israel is 80% desert and are what we might even call wilderness. And the fact of the matter is, in the wilderness or in the desert, you can get overheated, you can get confused, you can get thirsty, you can get hungry, you can be set upon by people who know the the territory while you don't, and they can take advantage of you, so you need shelter and protection. Uh, Quite honestly, you simply don't survive in the desert without hospitality and help from other people. Now, next week, we're going to meet Abraham, and when we meet Abraham, he's going to be sitting in the front of his tent. And probably one of the reasons Abraham is sitting in the front of his tent is that he's a desert person, and he knows to be on the lookout for those who are in need. You just can't live in the desert without hospitality. So maybe that's why the Bible talks about it. Or maybe the Bible talks about it because... There are so many stories in the Bible about um, the, the power of hospitality to change a life. We have hospitality, hospitality stories each Sunday. And one of the things you'll notice is that people get affected positively when others extend hospitality to them. And it's no to them. And it's no different in the Bible. Moses is on the run. He's a murderer. He's a fugitive from justice. He escapes into the desert in a place called Midian. He is taken in by a family with whom he spends the next 40 years and strengthened. And now with a family, he goes back to Egypt to lead his people to freedom. But the hospitality makes a difference for him. When the uh, people of Israel are trying to move into the promised land, they come up against a big obstacle, and it's a fortified city of Jericho. So they send spies to spy out Jericho. And the only reason the spies live is... uh, is because of the hospitality of a prostitute named Rahab who takes them in, hides them, and protects them until they can get to safety. Without her hospitality, they don't live. And then we get to the New Testament, and we come to a young man named Timothy. And Timothy is half Jew, and he's half Greek, which means both the Jews and the Greeks don't like him. He's got no place to fit. He doesn't belong in any gathering of upright religious people. And yet Paul takes him in, we're told, takes him even on a missionary journey. And according to to tradition in church history, uh, within about 20 plus years, Timothy will become the most important figure in Christianity. He will be the bishop of the most important town, a place called Ephesus. And so this hospitality turns Timothy's life around. So maybe that's why the Bible talks about hospitality. It knows the difference it makes in the lives of people. Or maybe the Bible's just more, uh, more pragmatic than that. Maybe the Bible knows that people who extend hospitality tend to get rewarded by God for doing so. There are wonderful stories about rewarded hospitality uh, in the Bible. Uh, one of the uh, stories is of um, a, a widow who, uh, who takes in one day a prophet named Elijah. And she and her son are about to sit down and eat 
the last supper. And I mean, literally the last supper for them, their last meal, because they've got no other food. And so Elijah comes and asks them for food. And they said, well, we were just about to, ready to sit down, eat, and then we're going to die. And what she meant was, we don't know where the next meal is coming from. And it hasn't showed up. So we figured this is it. But Elijah asked for some food anyway. And they give it to him. And you probably know how the story goes. As long as they feed Elijah, the food never runs out. An amazing miracle of hospitality. Uh, Elijah's successor is a man named Elisha. And he's traveling through the countryside. He meets a couple and they think the prophet of God is worth honoring. Uh, so they build him as actually his own guest room. They add a room to the house. So anytime Elisha's in town, he can stay at their house in his own room. And one of the things about this couple that's built this room is they're childless. They're barren. And they've longed for a child. And sure enough, while Elisha lives with them in the guest room, they have a child. Now, one day, unfortunately, the child dies. But Elisha happens to be in the house of the guest room at the time. He hears of this and he goes and throws his body prostrate on top of the dead child and prays and brings that child back to life. Again, amazing rewards for hospitality. Or maybe the Bible and its pragmatism know the other side of the story, the, the, uh, the flip side of the coin, which is there's a place that's called Sodom, and they, they got punished for not showing hospitality. Now, I know that it is uh, for people who want to take the shortcut on the Bible and don't want to look through the whole Bible, think things through very uh, deeply and kind of look at what the rest of the Old Testament says and, and what the rabbis teach, which Jesus would have known, they will tell you, well, the Sodomites uh, deserve to be punished because they were homosexual. That's not the biblical story at all. There are three visitors that go and show up at the gates, and the men of the town want to gang assault them. Their real root sin is that they're in hospitality. It's not about an orientation. It's about an entire action of inhospitality. And if you go to the prophet Ezekiel, he'll tell you that Sodom got destroyed because they're inhospitable and they do not care about the poor. The rabbis write, and this is interesting, they were so inhospitable to Sodom that it was a crime, punishable crime in Sodom to give a handout to a transient, whether it be food or money because they just didn't want those folks around. And how did Sodom get rewarded for their inhospitality? The town gets destroyed. Maybe the Bible knows that. Or maybe, maybe the Bible just knows this, that perhaps the best indicator of a person's faith walk with God is the extent of their hospitality or inhospitality to other people. Maybe the Bible knows that's the truest measurement of where you are in your walk with God in the community. I told some of you this quote because it really disturbed me. Uh, I learned it about a year ago. There was a wonderful activist who became a Christian. Her name was Dorothy Day. Did a lot of work in the Chicago area uh, uh, with the poor. But she once said this after she became a Christian. She said, I only love God as much as the person I love the least. I only love God as much as the person I love the least. She's saying, you, you want to measure your faith? You want to measure your love? What about the people you don't care about? That will be uh, the height and depth of the love that you have for God. So maybe the Bible knows that. But here's the deal. I don't know which of those it is. Here's the only thing I know with certainty. It ain't any of those for Paul. That's not the reason he gives. 
He writes Romans 14 and 15, and he wants the people of Rome to get together. People of Rome have some problems. they got a number of problems, almost like the people of Corinth. Now, one of the things you need to know real quickly is a lot of us were taught in Bible studies that Rome is like Paul's great, the- Romans letters, Paul's great theological masterpiece. Uh, Paul is going to write uh, logically uh, in such a way that you will understand everything he believes. Maybe, but I doubt it. More than likely, Paul's letter to Rome is just like his letter to Corinth. He's writing to a church he knows something about. He's going to visit them because he's never been there before. So he writes about his beliefs so they'll know something about him. But he writes more about that, and he gets toward the end of the book, and it's like, here's something I know about you. I've told you about me, but here's something I know about you. You don't get along with each other. You don't honor each other. And it's true, scholars say they believe there's at least Four barriers or divisions in this church in Rome. Here's the first one. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians don't like each other. Jewish Christians don't like Jewish non-Christians. People who are rich don't like the Romans who are poor. And then there's a fourth division in chapter 14, which is, and this, this was in Corinth, the people who have a long tradition of faith have found freedom in Christ And they know that the old laws don't matter. And they don't like the people who still think you have to keep all the old laws in addition to following Jesus as well. They're called weak because they just don't understand the power of Christ. And one doesn't like the other. And so Paul looks at this in chapter 15, and this is finally what he says. You've got to get together. You've got to welcome each other and be hospitable to each other. And the reason he gives is not any of the reasons I've given you so far. The reason he gives is welcome each other. Because that's what Jesus did for you. And we get this picture that Audrey talked about this morning on the cross where the arms of Christ are open to embrace. And basically he's saying, Christ embraced you. That is the motivation. That is the example as well of what you do for others. He took you in even when you were God's enemy. Paul's very clear in Romans that Christ died for us. Anybody know this verse? While we were yet... Sinners, that was it. We were living apart from God in ways that God uh, didn't approve, and that's the very moment. Christ didn't say, you know, if y'all get together, I might get up there. might do something about this. No, as you were, where you were, he opened and embraced. And Paul said, that's the motivation. That's what we do. It's not because we agree on everything, but because... That's what Christ did for us. See, a lot of people in our day preach tolerance, and I don't think tolerance is a bad thing, but tolerance is often based on the fact, well, you know, everything's kind of relative. We're each the blind man and the elephant. None of us has the whole truth, and so we're all feeling around. Let's be considerate of others. Maybe, but that's not what Paul said. The reason that you embrace another person and engagement has nothing to do with with, uh, truth has nothing to do with whether you think their opinion uh, is is plausible or not. It has everything to do with one thing. That's what Jesus did for you. So you do it for others. Let me make a few suggestions before I stop about what I see in Paul's letter to the Romans to help me understand what hospitality looks like. The first thing is this. I think Paul's very clear that hospitality means you overlook the differences between you as a starting point. In hospitality, hospitality, our starting point is we accentuate the differences between us. And Paul would have known as a Jew, because it's a concept that goes back to Genesis, that our father and mother are Adam and Eve, and so all of us are the same. 
We have more that unite us than divides us. And then as a Christian, he would have known. And we also have all been God's enemies. We've worked in ways that were opposed to God. And so he says, let's start there with what we have in common. And so we overlook the differences and we look at the common things we have as human beings as the basis for um, getting together. I love what John Claypool once said. He said that when we're looking at someone, we need to learn to look beyond them, beyond what they show us in the front, because there's so much more. All of us have a past. All of us have things that we're dealing with, and we need to try to understand what's going on um, in in people. Miroslav Volf is a wonderful theologian, and Volf is... uh, came out of uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, ethnic cleansing, the whole thing more than uh, 20 years ago. And he wrote a book, and one of the things about reconciliation and hospitality, one of the things he said is that hospitality must precede judgment. In other words, you've got to welcome people and get to know them rather than judge them first. Uh, Because a lot of times we judge people by their Facebook post, by their Twitter, by the political party they're a part of, by um, their ethnic background, by the side of town that they live, all sorts of things that we will do, and none of that is a biblical understanding or knowing. In the Bible, you know God not by doctrine, but by participating with God. And that's how you come to know God. You have a living relationship. And it's the same way for people. You only know people in relationships. So the first step is to try to have that relationship. Then we will come to understand one another. So the first thing is that welcome is about overlooking uh, differences. Another thing that's important about a welcome is that welcome is not an attitude. It's an actual practice. I know I told some of you this summer that I usually give myself credit just for feeling bad. So if something bad happens to someone, I'm like, oh, that's terrible. Oh, bless their heart. You know, and I feel good about it because I feel bad about it and that I've done my Christian duty. Well, that's kind of not the way the Bible sees it. James, the brother of Jesus, writing to the early church, says this. You have somebody who doesn't have a coat who comes in and you say to them, oh, bless you, be warm, I hope you get a coat. Or you get somebody, James says, who's hungry and you say, bless you, be filled, I hope you get some food. And James says, that doesn't cut it. It's not about an attitude. It's about practice and i think it'll be and the specific practice we believe paul has in mind in in rome is this that they gather for meals just like the corinthians and so people based on their division are excluding other people from their table at the meal if not excluding them altogether. have you ever invited somebody over for dinner it's an intimate act and usually you trust them or you want to get to know them more or you already have something in common i mean meals are important They make a difference. So Paul's giving them a concrete act of something they could do, not just a general feel-good attitude to have toward other people. And finally, and I just have to say this in closing because it's like truth in advertising. Real hospitality is painful and it's costly because to open your life to someone else involves sacrifice on your part. Jesus on the cross again. That's a sacrifice. The father watching the son be crucified is a sacrifice. It's costly for us to truly welcome those who are different. And yet, it can be done, and it must be done. 
I'm reminded of the story of Corey Ten Boom. Are you familiar with Corey Ten Boom? You may remember the book, The Hiding Place, or the movie. Corey Ten Boom's family is in, in the, uh, Amsterdam hiding Jews from the Nazis. And then all of a sudden they get caught. So Corey and her sister get shipped to a concentration camp. There her sister dies, but Corey survives. After the war, she goes on a speaking tour trying to promote hospitality, forgiveness, love, welcome. And she goes across Europe with this message, and she comes to Bavaria one night, gives, um, gives the talk, and as often happens with a guest speaker, there's a line of people that want to see her afterwards, and she begins to shake their hands and talk with them, and then she sees him. A couple people back in the line. She recognized them right away. He is one of the guards, one of the former Nazi guards of the concentration camp, who has treated Corrie ten Boom and her sister brutally. And soon he's next in line. And soon there he is, extending his hand to her. And she can't move her hand. She's frozen as he sits there with a smile on his face. And finally she prays, God, Father, with the great mercy you have poured out upon me, help me pour it out upon this man. And she's able to move. She takes her hand. And the beginning of reconciliation takes place. My hands, they're dirty. They're stained with things done and Things left undone. But this I know, that on the cross, Christ took my dirty and stained hand and clasped it with his, within his. And I know that I can do no less.